So if you would uh, turn with me to chapter 1 of the book of Galatians, um, which is not an easier, lighter book at all, (laughs) Um, but it is an immensely influential book in the church, and I'm looking forward to going through it with you, um, because Galatians is good for what ails you. Um, It's got a little bit of everything you need in it. Um, So we're going to cover that. And we may take a break here and there throughout it because there are some other things that we could stay within the confines of Galatians and and talk about some things a little bit more in depth. And we will probably do that over the course of this study. But we are going to be in Galatians for the next little bit, except for Christmas. We will take a break in December and do some Christmas uh, sermons there. But uh, before we start the actual text of Galatians, uh, I, I want to read this to you. It's from an article in Fast Company, which is a, it's a business publication, if you know anything about it. Um, it has nothing to do with the church. has nothing to do with anything really religious at all, of any religion. It's strictly business, no pun intended. Uh, but this is an excerpt from an article that I think is appropriate for what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, ask a group of college graduates their plans after graduation... And chances are none are going to say, I want to work for a household goods company. Yet seventh generation, a household goods company, is a top employer of millennials. They manufacture seemingly unexciting products. Dish soap, fabric softener, toilet paper. But the company's products are authentically imbued with a higher purpose to inspire a consumer revolution that nurtures the health of the next seven generations. A purpose mobilizes people in a way that pursuing profits alone never will. A company's purpose cannot simply be a pretty set of words. As the adage goes, actions speak louder than words. Seventh generation walks the talk of its purpose, and its employees and customers notice. The company encourages consumers to line dry clothes instead of machine drying at the risk of cannibalizing its dryer sheet product. They're using their business to start a movement that will change an industry. This authenticity, potentially at the expense of their bottom line, inspires loyalty that no lip service will create. As a company, it's important to think about why you're in the business you're in. What drives you? If your business succeeds, what would your ideal world look like? When a company demonstrates its authentic purpose, consumers feel a connection to the products and company. They will choose the authentically purposeful company's products, even if it's not the cheapest offering. Now, Stapleton Baptist, we are not a company. You are not consumers. And we are not selling a product. But between you and me, there's some wisdom in that article, isn't there? There's a little bit of truth in there that folks can tell when you really believe what you're doing. They can tell. Here's my question as we're digging into Galatians. We're going to start, and this is Paul's question throughout. What are you here for? What are we, what is Stapleton Baptist here for? Why do we exist? And if we can answer that question, we ought to have a pretty good way of evaluating ourselves and what we're doing. If we don't know why we're here, we don't know whether or not we're doing it. Have you ever stopped to think about that? If we as a church don't know why we're here, how do we know if we're succeeding? How do we know if we're doing what God called us to do? 
Our church has a purpose. The church in Galatia had forgotten that purpose. They forgot what made them. They forgot what they were there for. And it caused Paul no shortage of just... I'm pretty sure the church in Galatia is probably... Between them and the church in Corinth, they probably created a few gray hairs on Paul's head. Uh, So that's the reason that I titled this sermon A Church Without the Gospel. That ought to be a scary prospect for any of you. A church without the gospel. Can they exist? Well, it depends on what you mean. If you want to talk about a building full of people that meets one day a week, absolutely, there are plenty of those that exist without the gospel. But if you want to talk about a real biblical church changing the hearts and lives of men, women, and children and seeing souls saved and brought into relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no such thing as a church without the gospel. So what I want us to do today is I want us to dig in and look at ourselves, to look at our church family and say, are we a church of the gospel? So, Galatians chapter 1 verse 1, if you would stand with me out of the respect for the reading of God's word, we're going to go just through the first five verses. Galatians chapter 1 verses 1 through 5, Paul, an apostle, Not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the opportunity to be here today and hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Church without the gospel, is it possible? I hope not here. I want to start by talking a little bit at the beginning about what it means that Paul was an apostle. And then we're going to break down three things that Jesus did as part of the gospel. Three actions that Jesus took, three actions that Jesus takes that are part of the gospel. But before we do this, we've got to talk about what Paul says here at the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says he's an apostle. What in the world is an apostle? This is one of those words that we throw around church all the time, and we never define it. Uh, any of y'all ever been driving down the road? I, I know that I, I've, I've done this. You go into Augusta, or maybe even you know somewhere in, somewhere in, I don't know, Wren's. And you see someone who says they're an apostle. You ever seen this? On billboards or on a building, you know, maybe a building that looks somewhat like a storefront. Someone who claims to be an apostle. There's only one problem with that. That ain't no more. So we're going to talk a little bit about what an apostle is. Paul says he is an apostle. Now, this word, if you go back to the original Greek that the New Testament was written in, outside of the Bible, it does not have any special meaning. It's from the Greek word apostello. It's a verb. That means to send. And it wasn't usually used of people. It was used of things like letters, uh, you know, maybe documents that were being legal documents that you know you would you would send something kind of like when you 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 fill out paperwork and you mail it in to uncles and you put your John Hancock on it and you send it in. It's a legal document that you apostello it. 
away. It's sent from you, carrying your authority. But then, this word, the equivalent of it, started getting used in in Jewish literature that they translated a particular word in the Old Testament using apostello in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And I'm just going to read you um, what uh, Walter Elwell says in the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. Um, Here the verbal form in 1 Kings has become a noun in itself, retaining the meaning one who is sent. So now the word has started to mean a person. The rabbis use the word primarily in contexts which are neither explicitly theological nor religious, but rather have to do with matters of the law. The word is used of individuals who are temporarily authorized to carry fully in their own person the person and rights of another in the accomplishment of some act. The oft-cited passage from the Mishnah, which is just a Jewish explanation of the law, provides a clear definition The one who is sent is the same as the one who sins. So in other words, when Jesus takes the apostles, the twelve plus Paul, and Jesus sends them, apostellos them out into the world, they bore an extension of His authority. They were a select group of people that existed in that particular time. I give you some scripture to back this up. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 8 through 9, and some of these verses are on your handout, some are not, because I ran out of room, because I got excited. 1 Corinthians 15, 8 through 9, last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time, for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. That Paul says there is a select group of people, the apostles, was added too late and he wasn't worthy to be part of it because of his, his prior treatment of the church. Okay? So this is not that you can just stand up and say, I feel like an apostle today. I'm going to be an apostle now. You can't just do that. There's a reason that we ordain pastors and we ordain deacons and you have never ordained an apostle. One person ordains an apostle, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if he ain't done it, it wasn't done. Okay? Second, Galatians 2, 7-8. through 8, I know we're going to get there, but this is important. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, Paul is saying, okay, so Peter was sent, Jesus specifically sent him to the Jews. Jesus specifically sent Paul to the Gentiles for he who worked effectively in Peter for apostleship to the circumcised, for sending to the circumcised, also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. It is a special sending of Jesus Christ that bears special authority given to them by Jesus for a specific task. The twelve and Peter to the Jews, Paul to the Gentiles, specifically authorized by Jesus. So how do we apply this? Very briefly before we get going, there is no such thing today as an apostle in the same sense as there were then. If someone today claims to you to be an apostle, take a big step back really fast. Okay? 
Now somebody, you, they can mean it innocently. Apostle by itself just does mean one who is sent. But y'all, apostle is a loaded word now. It doesn't just mean somebody who was sent. It means someone who was sent specifically by the risen Christ in person. Okay? So when somebody claims to be an apostle, that's why we don't use the word apostle. We use the word missionary. Okay? We send missionaries. We don't send apostles. Jesus sends apostles. They were specifically chosen by Jesus himself for the foundation, laying the foundation of the church and the laying the foundation of the understanding of the gospel. Because of Paul's position as an apostle in the book of Galatians, we don't get to treat his opinion as just, oh, well, he's some old man that wrote this book 2,000 years ago. Have you ever heard somebody say that about the Bible? That it's just a book written by a whole bunch of old men a couple thousand years ago? Yeah, I've heard it too. There's only one problem. When those men 2,000 years ago were specifically identified by Jesus as the ones that would be laying the foundation of the church with Him as the chief cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, we don't get to just take Paul's opinion as just the opinion of some other guy. He is specifically sent by Jesus with specific authority to tell us what He's about to tell us. So just keep that. I wanted to briefly say that before we go any farther forward in this text that you need to keep this in your back pocket that if you read enough of Paul, y'all, eventually Paul's going to offend you. He's going to do it. And when that happens, maybe in this book, maybe in some other book, when Paul offends you and he ruffles your feathers and you poke your chest out and you go, uh-uh, Paul, that's not right. That's your flesh bowing up against an apostle. Just remember that. That that he has special authority here. That Jesus has sent him. So, Paul, and then he, he drives this home. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man. No people, no just normal people, not that Jesus is not a person. But no regular, ordinary old people made him an apostle, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me. That's a pretty beefy greeting. Which ought to give you some hint of where he is going. He says, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Now, the first half... We're going to dive into Paul's explanation of the gospel now. Why did Paul give such a beefy greeting talking about God, Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead? He doesn't really greet anybody else in the letter this way. Look at his greeting here starting in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself from our sins. The first half of this couple of verses is really Paul's standard greeting of the beginning of most of his letters. But there are a few things here that are different. Look immediately prior to this in verse 2. Paul says to the churches of Galatia. I went through all of Paul's letters to the other churches and I'm going to read to you how he greets them. In Romans, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. 1 Corinthians, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. 2 Corinthians, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Ephesians, to the saints who are in Ephesus, 
and faithful in Christ Jesus. Philippians, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Colossians, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. 1 Thessalonians, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And 2 Thessalonians is identical. Every one of these letters begins with some form of greeting that ties the church he's writing to to Jesus, except Galatians. Galatians is the only letter that Paul does not mention God in his identification of the church. Let that sink into you. That Paul does not identify the church in Galatia with Jesus Christ. He just points them out and says, Hey, all y'all folks that gather and call yourself a church in Galatia. That ought to make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. That ought to make you ask the question, if Paul was writing a letter to us, would he refer to us as the saints in Stapleton or would he say the church in Stapleton? What would he say? It all has to do with the issue in this main book. Or the main issue in this book. What's the problem? Here's the problem. And this is not in our sermon today, but it's the center point of the book. So I have to mention it. Verse 6. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from Him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. This is the problem with the book. That the church in Galatia exists as a bunch of people who go through the motions, but they have totally and completely forgot the gospel that called them to God in the first place. They don't know why they're there anymore. They might have started out well, but then they got caught up in other stuff. They have totally and completely forgot the gospel, and they started adding to it. They started taking away from it. They started modifying it. They started forgetting it. That they have turned away from the gospel that called them to God in the first place, so much so that Paul doesn't even refer to, refer to Jesus in his mention of their church. That's why Paul, in his introduction of himself, says, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul's got to point it out because he's not sure they remember it anymore. Look at verse 3. Let's dig into the, the first of Paul's pieces of explanation of the gospel, which is first, Christ gave himself for our sins. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. I'm going to bring a little, bit of, a little bit of the kitchen into the dining room for a minute. I sat down and I was looking at these verses this week. And I said, I'm going to keep this simple, because that's what Paul was trying to do. So I took this and I broke it down into Christ, gave himself for our sins. I said, we'll just explain each of these in turn. Christ. And I was like, good Lord, how am I going to explain Christ in the space of... <laughs> There's a lot in that one word. Who is the Christ? Who is the Messiah? The Jesus is the promised coming one, the, the sinless one, the one who would save us. That God sent Him to do what? To give Himself for our sins. 
Stapleton Baptist Church, that is the most important thing we ever talk about here. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. The ESV translates the words rendered first of all in the New King James as, as of first importance. Now, I don't want to dance around this. There's a lot of good stuff that goes on at Stapleton Baptist Church. I love this place. We get letters like that because y'all are a bunch of loving people. Y'all just love folks. That's good. You're supposed to. And you are. And I'm proud of you as your pastor for that. That's good. We got a, we got a great growing men's ministry and women's ministry. We're feeding single moms. We're seeing folks come in the doors we've never seen before. You know, we, we got lots of good stuff that goes on. Vacation Bible School this last year was amazing. I was dead at the end of it, but it was awesome. And those kids enjoyed it, and parents loved it. They did. But do you know that if we get caught up in the production of Vacation Bible School... Or even the, the feeding of the hungry. Or building relationships with people. If we do all of these good things. Spoiler alert. Come back tonight. We're going to talk about when good things take the place of the main things. We can get caught up in all of these good things. And forget that which is of first importance. That Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures. Do you know that if you go and you build relationships with people. And make friends. And you never share the gospel. It does not matter if the church motivated your relationship with that person or not. They will die and go to hell. It does not matter if you feed their body. If, if they never hear the gospel for the salvation of their soul. They will die and go to hell. It does not matter, let, let speak to you personally rather than folks that are out, outside that we're talking about evangelistically. It does not matter if you give every Sunday, if you're here every Sunday morning, if you're here every Sunday night, if you're here every Wednesday night. If we are not focusing on the gospel, the first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, if we get away from that, we no longer qualify as a church. We may as well be the Lions Club or Rotary. I mean, what, what's the difference between us and a civic organization? What's the difference between us and... I almost said Salvation Army, but they do share the gospel. What's the difference between us and... You know, pick a charitable organization that has nothing to do with the church, that has nothing to do with Jesus. There are plenty of charitable organizations out there who do way more in terms of charity than we do. They feed more people. They clothe more people. They shelter more people. Habitat for Humanity. Has Stapleton ever built a house for somebody? Probably not. 
And, and that's not a knock. I'm just saying, if we're not sharing the gospel, then we may as well fold up and just go join somewhere else that's doing this stuff. Hadn't we? Because if the, if the gospel's not important, then there are plenty of folks out there who have much bigger organizations and, and pools of resources than we do. But that's not, that's not a good idea. Why? Because they're not interested in sharing the gospel. Habitat for Humanity can build you a house and put you up in it, but if you don't come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will still die and go to hell. Why is this important? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ giving Himself for us according to the Scriptures, that is the foundation of the church. That has always been what we are about, and we cannot allow ourselves to get away from it. One of my favorite early church fathers, St. Athanasius, listen, this was, this was the better part of 2,000 years ago. This is in the first couple of centuries A.D. This is what he said. Since what was due from all must needs be paid, for it was due that all should die, as I said before, because the wages of sin is death. For this reason specially he dwelt among us. To this end, after the proof of his Godhead from his works, he then offered up the sacrifice also on behalf of all, surrendering his own temple to death in place of all, to make all men no more liable to the account and the old transgression, and to show himself also mightier than death, showing forth his own body incorruptible as first fruits of the resurrection of all. That Christ dying for our sins is the total and complete center, not only of what we do, but who we are. Your identity, and we need to hear this, especially in 2017, your identity is not primarily American. Your identity is not primarily black. Your identity is not primarily white. Your identity is not primarily Republican. Your identity is not primarily Democrat. It's not primarily independent. It's not primarily uh, rich. It's not primarily poor. It's not primarily English-speaking. It's not primarily Spanish-speaking. It's not primarily French-speaking. It's not primarily Canadian. It's not primarily any of that. It's primarily, if you are a Christian, one for whom Christ died. That is the core of your identity. We cannot do enough to pay off that sin debt. The wages of sin is death. At the beginning of life, you clock in on your card. And you work sin for 75, 80, 85, 90 years. And at the end of your life, you punch out. Except you haven't earned wages of life. You've earned wages of death. The same way you would turn in your time card at the end of the day to get a paycheck, the Bible says the wages of sin is death, that all that sin that you worked, that you got on your time card, when you turn it in, you get paid out in death. That's your wages. That's a bad position to be in if there's not somebody to pay that debt for you. But Jesus did. And you can't do enough to make it where you don't need Jesus. Well, me and God got it worked out. That I try hard and I do my best. And I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a church member. I ain't been saved or anything, but I do the best I can. I give a little bit here and there. No, sir. No, ma'am. That's not the way it works. 
You can't do enough. Christ died for your sins. And if He doesn't die for them, if you don't accept His sacrifice, then you will die for them. Romans 4, 3-5. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. To him who works, the wages are not counted as grace but as debt. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. If you do not grab hold to the truth that Paul says right here that Christ gave Himself for our sins, if you don't grab a hold of that truth, that specific truth, and you do not place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are by no measurable, measurable standard a Christian, and you are in danger of dying and facing the wrath of God alone. The center point of our church is for me to stand up here and say, Come to Jesus. Pastor, I can't afford it. No, you can't. He paid it for you. We don't want your money for you to be saved. I'm not going to ask you for your financial statements if you want to come up here. I'm not going to do that. Well, Pastor, I don't know enough. Which of us do? All you got to know is that of first importance, that Christ died for your sins, was buried, and rose from the grave three days later. That's what you need to know. You can learn, you got the rest of your life to learn, but you need to know that as of first importance. My job is not to tell you how to have financial prosperity. It is not my job to tell you five steps to a better marriage. It is not my job to, to tell you how to do better. It is not my job to provide fun activities for your children, though I am not opposed to them en route to doing what we're actually here to do, which is to teach you that Christ died for your sins. And any church that has diverged from that has diverged from actually being a church. And y'all listen, I'll tell you this so you can get inside your pastor's head a little bit. If I got a choice between weakening that down a little bit and having 500 people or keeping it right there and having five, I'll take five. I'll take five. I don't want to be responsible before God for having 500 people not hear the gospel just so we can have them in a room and feel good about ourselves. Now, offer me 500 people who want to hear the gospel. Let's take that. Christ gave himself for our sins. First importance. Second, Christ saves us from an evil age. Look at the second half of verse 4. That he might deliver us from this present evil age. What does an evil age look like? Turn on the TV. Y'all, I want to say that I'm shocked by this stuff that I see from Hollywood and D.C. How many people have you seen in the news in the last seven days that have abused, assaulted, and taken advantage of people? But now, I don't purport to know all the details of any of this. But y'all, both of those groups, Hollywood and D.C., 
purport to be our moral compass in this country, do they not? Anytime Hollywood does something crazy, which is, you know, on days that end in Y, D.C.'s got something to say about it. One particular part of D.C. does, oh, they're just morally bankrupt, and of course they're supporting, you know, liberal social agenda, and blah, 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 blah. And then Hollywood turns around and says, well, look at these guys in D.C. They're doing all the same stuff we are, blah, 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 blah. And then the, the columns come down, and it turns out everybody's doing the same things. Tell me we don't live in an evil age. We've had presidents in both parties accused of adultery. Both. Senators, representatives, in both. See, I can say both, so I'm not being political. I mean, if Elijah could call out kings, I feel like I could call out congressmen. we got entire magazines and TV shows celebrating the lives of these people in Hollywood that you find out live in a systemic, abusive cycle. And they claim to be our nation's moral compass. And you know what the scary thing is? They are. Have you ever thought about that? They are our nation's moral compass. They're the folks who, who listen to the most. We don't think it's an evil age because we're surrounded by it. We, we lose track of what the world actually is. Listen to this. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Does that not sound like the world we live in? This, this story ends with God sending the great flood in the book of Genesis and killing everyone except for Noah and his family. God cannot and will not tolerate sin and do not confuse God's patience with God's not caring about it. 2 Peter 3, 8-9 But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish and all should come to repentance. Think back to the flood. Think up to what Peter said. That it wasn't immediate as soon as sin occurred that God flooded and wiped everybody out. God was patient. Nobody repented. Nobody even realized they needed to repent because it was the sin was so ubiquitous. It was so just surrounding them. It was part of their life. It was part of their parents' lives and their kids' lives and their grandkids' lives that everyone was involved in the same stuff so nobody noticed anything was wrong. And then God is so grieved by their wickedness that Genesis said He was sorry He had made them. And Peter warns us in the same book, Second, I did not put it on here. Don't this, People do the same thing now that they did in the flood. God doesn't care. Look, if God cared, He'd have done something about it. Let me warn y'all of something. God judged the world once. 
he will judge it again. Just because he hasn't done it yet doesn't mean he is not going to. And the reason he has not done it yet is because he is being patient with you. He is being long-suffering with you. That Christ has died for your sins and he loves you. And God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He does not want you to have to suffer that. But if you choose to have your sin instead of have Him, He will let you have your sin and everything that goes along with it. Which is death. He's provided for you a way out. Christ died for your sins. Come to Christ and be delivered from this evil age. That's why Jesus came to take you out of the the age that will receive the judgment. You don't have to be part of it. Well, I just can't believe that God's so mean. He would destroy an entire world. He's not going to destroy the entire world. He's going to destroy everybody who didn't say, you know, I think I would rather reject God and be destroyed. He's giving you an out. He's given you freedom from that. Take it. He came to deliver you from this evil age. And I thought about this this week as well. Do you know that that coming to Christ is actually a way for you to rebel? This is so funny to me. Our nation is is a nation of, of rebellion. Ask Great Britain, circa 1776. They know. It's built into our national identity. You're not going to tell me what I can and can't do. Oh, say can you say. And we waved that flag and we told Britain, you can take your taxes right on back across the pond. And we won too. <laughs> We will throw your tea over the side of a boat and we will march Washington right across that river with his wooden teeth and everything and we will send you and your red coats right back to Britain. We're a nation of rebellion. That's what we were born out of. And everybody seems to have this just desire. I'm going I'm to do me. I'm going to do what I want. And somehow, being a Christian... Obeying God, coming to Christ, that has been casted as conformity. Well, you're just you're just buying into you're just buying you're that same old thing. I'm a rebel. I'm not going to listen to that. I'm going to do what I want. But my question is, who are really the rebels? I think it's us. It's the majority, it's the mainstream saying, well, you're just duped by that religion thing. I'm going to be my own person. I'm going to walk according to my own will, according to the lust of my flesh and my eyes and the pride of life. That's really interesting. That's exactly what Scripture says. The majority of people the mainstream will do that walk the broad road that leads to destruction rather than the narrow road that leads to life and few who find it. Be a rebel. Do not be conformed to this world, Romans 12, 2, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Come to Jesus. That's the only rebellion left. Well, I'm going to shack up with my boyfriend and my girlfriend because nobody's going to tell me what to do. Conformity. I'm going to lie on my taxes. Conformity. I'm going to take what I want. Conformity. I'm going to be an atheist because it's trendy. Conformity. Conformity. 
you're really going to listen to that 2,000-year-old book about some virgin-born guy who came back from the dead? I am rebel. Absolutely. Be delivered from this evil age. Come apart from the mainstream. Come to Jesus. Come to the narrow road. And then finally, Christ fulfills His Father's will, the salvation of believers. It says that Jesus did all this, the end of verse 4, end of verse 5, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The apostles were caught off guard by Jesus' crucifixion. They didn't know. They thought that He was going to set up the kingdom right then, that Israel was going to come back to power, the, the boot of Rome would be taken off their throat. They were not prepared for His death. But He was. That was the plan the whole time. Jesus came intending to die. He came in obedience.